Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with handsome Howard Tybal. No, you look better today. I don't. You really do. Did you get a haircut? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> oh, my God, I may have stumped you. No, no that was Half good. That was, like my, that was like my go-to fifth-grade joke. I haven't, I, I haven't actually used it in a while, but it's you there. Jump. All right, you, got, you seem like you had a pause there, right? I caught you, <laughs> Did, you don't need not. to worry about that because I'm going to edit it out. It'll be so smooth. That's right. God. All right, never mind. <laughs> Can't swear on these podcasts. <laughs> How are you, Howard? Tell me about uh, we've you know we we had uh, I'm, I'm going to pull back the curtain. We had stacked up a couple of episodes because you had some travel and uh, um, and so we haven't talked in several weeks. And so I I feel like uh, you're a, a voice from the fog right now. What have you been up to? Oh my God, what have I been up to? Uh, interesting speaking uh, opportunities. Just came back today from the National Association of Education Procurement and did uh, a pep talk, which was like their version of a TED talk, competing with two other public speakers, and then the audience got to decide who they went to, and they all chose me, not really. The other two were fantastic. (laughs) One was negotiations. Uh, uh, The second guy went to prison for a Ponzi scheme, and now he is teaching ethics and traveling the country teaching ethics. It's a brilliant story. Wow. Brilliant. And I had to go after this guy, right? He's got the beautiful That's jumpsuit. Terrible. He comes. He comes out in uh, in uh, handcuffs oh. and a jumpsuit. Note to I, self: Add my, handcuffs to your roadshow. So I, I threatened. I, I actually suggested that what I that I was gonna now come clean that I used to be an Olympic swimmer. And let me show you what <laughs> my outfit was. And I started to take off my jacket and I scared the audience. <laughs> so that's what happened. Stick, but we stick with the handcuffs. Yeah, to get back to the handcuffs. So, uh, you know, been to AGB, been to uh, NAAP, and then I'm actually this week going to uh, speak at a trusteeship conference on institutionalizing change. So lots of really fun stuff. It is really fun stuff. We are coming off of a series of interviews, uh, uh, part of our, our governance series, which we've done almost unbroken, a couple of, uh, of special episodes in there, but almost unbroken on this idea of governance. And it, it sort of leads the question that we're dealing with today. And that, that question is, how might you summarize, based on our conversations with these great leaders in their own institutions and your work with uh, associations and institutions in the field, how would you sum up what presidents, chancellors, and cabinets are dealing with today? How do you approach that question? It's a great question. And, it, and what's fascinating is, you know, the, the more those of us who are in this world, both internally and externally, dealing with this— We're beginning to learn the nuance that we have to think differently and talk differently about the different types of institutions. So if we're talking about the large publics, you know, whether it's the research and the comprehensives, the liberal arts is the second category, the community colleges and the up and rising for profits, uh, they each have a, a, a different trigger point. They each have vulnerabilities. They each have their strengths. And that's, I think, what the fundamental challenge is of thinking about what's the business model going to be. It's really going to be different. Uh, I heard a thought leader talk about this, is that where this is going is is that each type of institution is going to need the right size to its own market, 
you know, and I love this. I love that concept. You know, we want to simplify it, but the truth is they're all very different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. I think that's a really important thing. And I, it makes me reflect because, you know, I, I, my experience is, is both uh, private and for profit. I'm at a private now and it's a, it's a small private liberal arts and I love it dearly, but occasionally I'm, I'm left with this feeling like I'm, I'm, you know, sitting in my room, listening to a, an LP and watching the vinyl spin uh, while everybody else has moved on to, <laughs> Uh, Spotify. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And you know, if you think about, if I just contrast even the large publics and and the story that's out there, and and I'm working with one in particular that recognizes that they very likely in the next five to ten years are going to be operating as quasi private institutions, in that in their state they're preparing for going to zero funding. Now that they're actually designing their and rethinking their budget processes, their distribution of teaching and research around the likelihood that they really have to be self-sufficient and they can't rely on the state. So what does that actually mean from a, uh, from a, uh, where they're getting their resources yeah, from? Yeah, certainly a tuition standpoint. But what's interesting about the large institutions, the publics in, tip, uh, in particular, compared to the uh, the liberal arts, typically smaller private ones, is that the these larger ones, their goal, they're, they're not looking to uh, shrink their class. Matter of fact, they need to keep their classes and their institutions anywhere, in, you know, anywhere between 20 and 50,000 students. And we're talking about the really large publics. Yeah. So for them, the issue is not selectivity. Uh, yes, they want to uh, have a, uh, a sort of a, uh, a higher SAT and and um, GPA students coming in, but the truth is, is that they can't afford to give up students. So their big issue is retention. You know, so if you think about the large publics, they need to find ways to have kids not transfer out. You know, the statistics are coming out that I think it's close to half the kids don't start or don't finish where they started. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? So if you think about the dilemma there, you know, if you got a kid coming to your school and they leave after the first year, you've lost uh, three-fourths of your revenue. Yeah, that's right? right. So for the large publics, it's, it's about retention. While the liberal arts, what they're talking about at the senior level, is how do we demonstrate value of the humanities and liberal arts while also really demonstrating a real return on investment? And in this case, I'm not talking about the Amherst or the Williams, but the majority of these approximately 1,000 private colleges. And I can tell you the Sweetbriar and what, what has, what the choice that the trustees at Sweetbriar have made is a wake-up call for every institution. All yes, right. they're unique. Summarize, they're, summarize that, summarize their choice for those well, who don't know what's going yeah, on. Well, Sweetbriar, basically, the trustees, with an $84 million endowment, you know, it's a private school, all women's in a rural rural area, uh, has chosen that they are going to close up after this year, and all of the kids who are—I mean, I, I, everything I'm reading is they're doing everything they can to help the senior class get jobs, the under the undergraduates, the you know, freshmen through juniors, um, transfer and take care of them, but. There's there's a there's a whole group within Sweetbriar that is rightfully saying, you know, we have an eighty four million dollar endowment. Can't we find a way to make this still work? And what I think is powerful about the Sweetbriar choice 
for other institutions is not that others should choose to consider closing, but that they should be having the conversation and then choose to move forward. But this has opened the door to have those kind of conversations. Should we continue on a slow decline or do we need to tell the truth about where we are? I think that, I mean, you could argue it both ways. I think that their their trustees have made a bold, you know, but some people think it's reckless. Other people think it was bold. Uh, it depends on your view of, of when it comes to this kind of brutal fact, what do you do about it? And, and they made that choice. So the liberal arts is looking at the fact that they can't keep raising tuition. There's a perception that you can't get a, uh, uh, let's pick a degree, like uh, one of those traditional psychology. Although psychology, you know, you, you could leave and, and get a certain kind of job in the marketplace. But the typical liberal arts kinds of degrees, there's Philosophy. a perception <clears throat> that you can't get jobs from it. Yeah. Um, or that your debt is going to way exceed your ability to pay it back in some kind of timely way. Right. The liberal arts are holding on to, and I, is that they're teaching kids critical thinking. So in one breath, I think leadership in liberal arts absolutely should continue to espouse this. They got to get better at helping people outside of their institutions understand that there really is value and kids coming from their institutions are, are well positioned to be able to secure jobs because of what they're learning. Well, so I think that's a really good point. I think that's a good point, but I also think that the, there is another pressure from the from the classroom, which is I think the professional degrees are getting much better at teaching critical thinking in addition to. Uh, and so I, I know I can tell you our own curriculum, critical thinking has become a core deliverable in performance objectives. Like we are measuring our uh, curricula uh, against critical thinking, you know, skill delivery. And so that when, when you have you know, non-traditional and, you know, alternative programs, business programs that are also able to deliver critical thinking, the value in a critical thinking liberal arts degree becomes less. Well, uh, what's interesting or, is or it's, more, it's a more ways. challenging case to make. Absolutely. The business schools, the undergraduate concentrations in business are integrating a liberal arts, liberal yeah. arts critical mindset. The liberal arts institutions are bringing in the career placements the understanding how to get the fundamentals around business. So both are sort of coming to the middle, yeah. recognizing that the others, that they have to they have to take from the other side to, to remain relevant, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that there's a challenge for these liberal arts schools that are in these high-priced, middle-tier markets where they're not necessarily drawing from out-of-region growth. Uh, there's always gonna be those that are not gonna have to worry. but that's the that's the conversations at the senior level for the liberal arts schools. The community colleges, I think, are so well placed right now. You know, with forty percent of the close to twenty million students going to community colleges, and and with the government also espousing the idea about free community college, there's absolutely a push for these schools to figure out how they're gonna keep up with their demand. So that's that's the conversation at the cabinet level in community college. How do we keep up with this growing demand and demonstrate that we can put kids in our system and have them graduate? Because there's, there's a pretty significant dropout rate uh, in the community college world. And then finally, the fourth sector 
which makes up of the 4,000 degree-granting institutions, approximately 1,400 institutions that call themselves uh, higher ed learning, but they're for-profit, their their whole focus, I think, and it's going to begin to shift, is as they begin to show that their credentialing, that you went through our system, you have this degree, that these kids can get jobs that are decent or well-paying, as that continues to happen, there's going to be more kids and adults who are going to say, I don't need to go the traditional route. You know, it's it's parents like me. I, I went the traditional route. You went to a, a land-grant institution. You went to the resi- residential art experience, right? <laughs> a land-grant institution. What's so funny about that? I did. I did. I went to, well, you know, I did, uh, we've talked about it, my, my alma mater, University of Colorado Boulder. That's right. I, I also went to a, a small. I'm one of those uh, close to half that actually went to two undergraduate uh, institutions. But so. you had the, the the residential the residential experience, right? Twice. I was an RA man. I was a hall director. Yeah, exactly. They put me I, I, in I just charge saw you of 500, 500 undergraduates. Are you kidding? What a mistake. That was a are mistake. There, are, are those kids? What are they doing today? Yeah, they should survey them to see if they got good jobs. I'm sure they're higher than average. So these the for profits. They, they are they're going to be increasingly relevant as more and more people are saying we don't need the residential traditional experience, partly because you got families coming in who, if you have first generation going to college, they don't have that expectation. I did. I want my kid to go through the residential four year experience, but that's that's not everybody's experience. And I think that we need to recognize that there's a place for this for-profit. I think the, the more important one for those leaders who are trying to produce change in their systems is that the best thing we can do be doing is using the for-profits up in our heels as motivation to say, how can we do what we do better, right? So yeah, not to put a fear of God into these, you know, your leadership and your institution. But the truth is, if we don't find a way to do what we do better or double down on our mission and know what programs that are really relevant to our students, if we don't figure out how to make it more efficient and effective for students to recognize the value of our institutions, these other types of institutions are only going to gain ground. So hopefully for the traditional institutions, they will see uh, they will use this as motivation for change. I think so. And this for-profit one is one that's that's uh, this argument is close to my heart. I mean, I, I have experience in in for-profit um, uh, as a big part of my life, just working in the field. And I think that there is a you know what they have, uh, you know, part of their sale is the job sale because the education it it, it the, what they have been able to do. I think. It, you know, and are doing successfully is changing the discussion of the the sort of cultural impact of education, that you don't have to go to school and take time out of your life to go get a degree to get a job. What they're saying is, you want a job? Let's start you now uh, on evening and weekend classes or online classes in our for-profit program, because all we do is efficiency of delivery. That's what we do. And but they're not. Uh, but they're the still at the beginning stages of having that kind of public credibility that they offer commensurate, even close to the value 
of the traditional experience. And but it's coming. Oh, and I, it's I think it's. I think it is shifting. I think you're. I, I think you're. Uh, you're. You're playing that one conservative. I think. I think there are more people who who actually don't know the difference between traditional ed and non-traditional ed, or pro- profit and uh, non-profit and for-profit than you think. I think there is a whole massive segment of this country that just sees school as school as school, and one school lets you do it at nights and online, and they are no different than the other one down the street. Well, that that point of view, Pete, that you have, and and I can tell you that many people who are running the traditional institutions do not espouse that that's really happening as fast as you're thinking. And that and is a, that is a challenge that they're having. That's, that's the right. that's the problem, Howard. That's right. That's right. But at the same time, you have to speak to their listening. Yeah. Because you know, if you say the sky is falling, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but you go at leaders and in traditional institutions with. Uh, with this kind of premise, without evidence, it just gets dismissed. Right, of course. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I think hey, we good solved talk. it. I think we did. Let's uh, let's put this one to bed. Uh, <laughs> so, what? Go what? ahead. You, you have more? You have more you want to talk about? Or can no, we wrap this you. up? You got more? No, I want to I wrap this up. I think we're good. I think we're good. Let's wrap it up. Uh, head over to uh, 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 tybalink.com. That's where you want to go to find out more about the show. You can subscribe for free in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, and you can join us on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. Uh, follow uh, follow us at Howard Tybal on Twitter, and just search for Tybalink on uh, LinkedIn. You can uh, follow us uh, follow us there and, and we see got some, all the good stuff we got going on. we got some really great upcoming guests, don't we? We do. That we, we, do. That we can't share yet. No, of course. We're sworn of course. To but I will tell you, we have some great guests that we have already uh, had. Oh if you gosh. haven't heard Larry Baker, uh, uh, Dr. Baker from uh, Des Moines University Osteopathic Medical Center. Before him, we had uh, the wonderful uh, Ron Friedman, uh, author of The Best Place to Work. So we've got a, a lot of great episodes in the can. If you aren't caught up and you're just catching this one on the website, go subscribe. Download some of our past episodes. It's a good thing for you. It's good for your heart. Your doctor says you should do this. On behalf of Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc.